Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. Right now, uh, you know, in the midst of the coronavirus, we have a, probably a higher potential for fraud than maybe ever before because there are people who are kind of in desperate need and they're thinking creatively about uh, how to divest other people of their money. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we focus on how to passively invest like a pro. Today, we've got a very special guest. We have Kim Lisa Taylor. She's a nationally recognized corporate securities attorney, speaker, and the author of the number one Amazon best-selling book, How to Legally Raise Private Money. She's the founder of Syndication Attorneys, PLLC, and InvestorMarketingMaterials.com, whose purpose is to provide quality legal advice, offering documents, and professionally designed marketing materials for clients nationwide. Kim has been the responsible attorney for hundreds of securities offerings, and she routinely teaches subjects related to legally raising private money in front of groups ranging from 50 to 1,000 plus attendees. Wow. I am, uh, I'm so excited to have you here today, Kim. That, that is an amazing resume and I think such an important topic. Uh, just focusing on, on something that from a private investor standpoint, I doubt we spend enough time really thinking about is, you know, you, you try to think, at least I do, that, that people are well-intentioned and, and that people are, are going into, into these things uh, with, with you know, the best of intent. And, and that's not always the case, right? So, so I'm so glad you're here to talk to us today about, you know, how we avoid, how we avoid fraud and, and how do we find the right sponsors and what, what should we be looking out for? So, so again, thank you for being here. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you so much for inviting me. This is just a hugely important topic. And I think right now, uh, you know, in the midst of the coronavirus, we have a, probably a higher potential for fraud than maybe ever before because there are people who are kind of in desperate need and they're thinking creatively about uh, how to divest other people of their money, unfortunately. Um, and then there's also you know, some other reasons that people might do this that, that aren't as intentional. So we can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, that, that's an interesting take, uh, especially, especially right now. I mean, you're right. There, there's, uh, there's distress out there, right? And that can yeah. cause people to, to yeah. act in, uh, in unfortunate ways. So I think very, very timely topic. So 
But before we get into how to identify um, this, before you get into a deal, can you tell us a little bit about why it's so important? Well, if, if somebody is accumulating funds from private investors and then they uh, you know, engage in some kind of fraud that, that makes the investment not viable, um, what happens is if they get in trouble, okay? If somebody complains to a regulator or somebody hires an attorney, tries to get their money back or, or something like that, then all of a sudden this person is, uh, you know, they're faced with these huge legal bills. And so what do they do? Well, they have control of your money. So they stop, uh, you know, suspend all distributions. They start hoarding all the cash and using it to pay their own legal bills. So all of a sudden your investment is uh, being used to pay somebody else's defense after they stole your money, um, you know, leading to, to further yeah. that. <laughs> you know, so it's just yeah. kind of a vicious cycle. Uh, you just have to be cautious because, it's going to impact your investment. Even if you do end up getting the money back, it, chances are you're not gonna get all of it back. You might get part of it back if you're lucky. You might get none of it back. Um, you know, either way, your investment is gonna be lost. And, and what typically happens to the property that you're invested in if somebody does get, get in trouble with the SEC, for example? You know, I guess it just depends you know, they could be forced into bankruptcy. They could, uh, you know, the property could go to a receiver. Um, you know, it, more likely it's just they're going to stop paying the bills and then it's going to get go into foreclosure mm -hmm. and the lender is going to foreclose and recover their losses, but there probably isn't going to be enough money to pay anybody else back. Gotcha. And, and as an investor, I mean, what, What's your recourse uh, against the sponsor as an investor? Is there anything that you can really do at that point once you've already gotten into the deal? You know, the, the only things you really can do, I mean, certainly you can, you know, call, call the person and complain and tell them you want your money back. Uh, likely that's not going to happen. Right. Uh, maybe if you're, if you catch it early enough, they might just get rid of you because you're the squeaky wheel, but the people that don't complain are, are going to go down with this ship. Mm -hmm. um, but you might have an opportunity. You can always complain to your own state securities regulators. You can complain to the SEC too, if you want to. Um, my experience with the SEC is that they typically don't investigate uh, things that are, you know, where you're raising, where somebody's stolen like $15 million, right? They, they don't necessarily get involved with the small stuff uh, just because they've got bigger fish to fry mm -hmm, and they have mm -hmm. limited resources. But your state securities agencies are very interested in the small stuff and they've got the time and the resources to pursue it. So your audience might not know that if you've invested in a syndication, say you live in Arizona, um, your Arizona securities agency, every state has its own securities agency. So you can complain to your Arizona state securities agency because every offering, even if it's a federal offering under federal law, uh, still has to comply with state filing requirements and still has to give jurisdiction to the state over that person in order to, to raise money within the states. Um, so just kind of a convoluted rule is that you have to, you have to at least notify the states and then uh, they have jurisdiction over you if you commit fraud within their state. Uh, so if, if you live in Arizona, your correct person to complain to would be the Arizona Securities Agency. Uh, attorneys can't help you do that, by the way. Uh, attorneys are not allowed to help people, um, you know, to try to uh, threaten criminal prosecution. Uh, 
uh, to gain an advantage in civil litigation. Most people don't realize that. So you're always free as a citizen to go on your own and complain to your regulatory agencies that that's not something an attorney can necessarily help you do. But the flip side of that is you could hire an attorney and, and civilly sue that person and uh, sue them for violations of securities laws. Um, so there are, there are ways to do it, but of course that one's going to be the more expensive way to do it because you're going to have to put the legal bills in order to get, to get any kind of recovery and you know, who knows if you're actually going to get recovery. Yeah, no, that, that's great information. I, I didn't realize a lot of that, especially about the state. So, I mean, it's, it sounds like really once you're in it, you're stuck. There, there's not a great. There's not a great way out of it. Either way, you know, most likely you're going to lose your money or you're going to spend a lot of money trying to go after the person to try to recover some money from a person that realistically probably doesn't have a lot of money because now, now um, there's a reason that they're doing all this, right? So I think the important thing is, it sounds like, let's make sure we don't end up in this situation in the first place. That's right. So, so let's talk about how we avoid, how we avoid ending up in that bad situation. Well, so, you know, you need to realize first what the types of ways are that people can commit fraud in a syndication. And I think there's really three different ways. Uh, there's people that are illegally raising private money. So they're not following securities laws when they're doing the raise, which is putting the entire investment at risk because, uh, you know, any violation of securities laws could cause the whole thing to completely derail if, if any investor ever complains and the regulators come around and, and start uh, unraveling the deal. Um, there's embezzlement, uh, so partner fraud, where you've got, you know, maybe three or four people within the management team and one of them is stealing money and the other three aren't really paying attention or they're not preventing it or maybe that person has control of the money and uh, they can't do anything about it. So I think that's, that's a very, that's probably one of the more common ones. Um, and then there's Ponzi schemes where people have already had an offering in place, they've uh, either lost the money or used the money, you know, maybe for an improper purpose, like, you know, their lifestyle or that kind of thing. And uh, now, in order to make the earlier investors whole, they have to bring in money from new investors. So those, I think, are the, the three common types. And certainly there's other creative types out there, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, th I think that that's a lot to unpack. There, there's a lot of things to watch out for. So why don't you take us through the, the three types and, and how do we identify for each of those? I mean, are there early warning signs, red flags, things that, that we can be watching out for as we, as we enter investments? Yeah, so I think let's start with the illegally raising private money. Is how can you spot that? So the first thing is you have to have an understanding of the securities laws that are allowing this person to even raise money from you if you're the passive investor. So the, just a quick, you know, one-on-one primer of the uh, securities laws that might be applicable to what you're doing is, um, you know, if someone is selling securities, so that means they're either selling, you know, the promissory notes or they're selling something called investment contracts. Investment contracts would uh, include investing in a company, right, where you're buying a portion of the ownership interest in that company. And it doesn't matter what kind of company it is. It could be a limited partnership, could be an LLC, something like that. But you're giving somebody your money in exchange for ownership interests in that thing. Then that's an investment contract. Um, so anytime you're passively investing and relying on someone else to generate a profit for you, that's really the classic definition of an investment contract. Um, so 
so first, okay, you're, if, if you're investing in securities, one of those things, then that person, in order to be able to, to offer that to you, either has to register the offering in advance, and that means going public, like Google did, like Facebook did, and uh, getting pre-approved by regulatory agencies before they even offer those investment opportunities. And for real estate, that's not gonna happen because you don't have time to go public, it's too expensive, it takes too long, you can't do it on an individual deal basis, which is how most people are raising money. Mm -hmm. So you have to qualify for an exemption from registration. So the exemptions uh, that are most common are Regulation D, Rule 506, Regulation D, Rule 506, and um, then there's interstate exemptions. If somebody was uh, raising money all within one state and the, all of the assets were in that state and they were in one state. So you could do a Texas interstate offering if everything was in Texas. Um, but the most common are the Reg D Rule 506, and there's two options under that. There's Rule 506B, Be Like Boy, that uh, allows the investor or the, the syndicator to raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited investors, but they can't do it through any means of general advertising or solicitation. So that, that point there about no advertising is key because mm -hmm. if you are investing with someone and who, has a, who claims they have a Reg D Rule 506B, exemption and you learned about this deal through some kind of an email blast and you don't know this person, they've already violated the law. Okay, gotcha. that's a very, very common way that people violate the law. Um, the other side of that is Regulation D Rule 506C, uh, see like cat, okay, the 506C exemption allows them to raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of verified accredited investors. So you actually have to go through some verification process or provide some evidence that you actually are accredited and that has to have been done within 90 days of making the investment. But if they're uh, offering the securities under Regulation D Rule 506C, then they are allowed to freely advertise. So, so you know, what would be your cues as to whether someone was doing this legally or not? If they're doing a 506B offering and you got a, the information about the offering through an ad and you don't have a pre-existing substantive relationship with the person who's offering those securities to you, then, uh, then that's your first red flag that they're probably doing it illegally. Um, if it's a 506, uh, if, if uh, it's a 506C and they're saying it's open, open to accredited investors only, and they could even do that with a 506B. They could restrict it to accredited investors only. Well, uh, you know, I've actually had an instance where somebody approached me and said, hey, I invested in this deal with this guy, and I, I want to get my money back. They haven't made the investment. They've had my money for like six months. And um, he said, well, well, it was an all-accredited offering, but I'm not accredited. I only have about $900,000 worth of uh, net worth. And so I was able to look at the documents and, uh, you know, wrote a letter to that uh, person and said, hey, this person wasn't even accredited. You should never have even allowed them into your deal in the first place. And they want their money back. So they were able to get their money back, luckily. Um, and they were mm -hmm. one of the few in that deal that did get their money back. Um, so you've got to look at to make sure that you meet the qualifications for that investment because if you don't and they're letting you in, then they're already violating securities laws and now you're at risk and the whole thing starts to unravel down the road. Um, you also have to understand from a security standpoint, what is the appropriate documentation you should be looking for? 
So if you're investing in a rule 506B offering, um, then you need to look for a private placement memorandum. So that's the disclosure document required by the SEC that explains the risks of the investment and uh, also explains how things are set up, who are the people that are in charge, what the money, you know, how much money they're raising, where they're getting it from, and what the money is going to be used for. Uh, all those things are required to be in a private placement memorandum. And the SEC has very specific rules on what is what those uh, private placement memorandums look like. If you're a non-accredited investor and you're being allowed in a deal, and the SEC would even uh, dictate the, what, what's on the cover page, what's on page two, what follows the cover page, what other information has to be contained within that document. So look for a private placement memorandum, get familiar with what that entails and make sure that yours is sufficient. And make sure that it describes which exemption these people are relying on. So they should be naming in that private placement memorandum, whether they're doing a 506B, 506C, or some other exemption. And then you want to look up the rules for that exemption. You can do that at the SEC's website and figure out whether or not you meet those requirements. And uh, if you don't meet it, uh, don't, don't try to invest, even if they say it's okay, because it's not. And if they're allowing you, they're allowing other people, they're violating the law, just, just steer clear. Um, and then uh, you can also look up, if it is a Reg B Rule 506B or 506C offering, there's a form that gets filed with the SEC called a Form D. And you can look up that company and the person that's offering those securities with the, with the SEC on what's called their EDGAR database, E-D-G-A-R database. So if you look up SEC EDGAR database, you'll find the right link to it. And you can go there and you can punch in their name and see if you can find them. And they should be individually listed because the SEC always wants to know who the individuals are behind the raise. Mm -hmm. They're going to be asking questions about that. Um, so, you know, it, 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 here's another red flag is if somebody is introducing you to someone who has a deal and they say, well, I know a guy who's raising money, then ask the person that's introducing you if they're being compensated for bringing you to that deal because the only people that can earn commissions on uh, referring investors to a deal have to have the appropriate securities licenses. If they don't, then they cannot earn a commission. So if somebody says to you, oh, well, I get a commission of 3% on whatever money you invest in the deal, then you need to know that. And they also, it's mandatory that they disclose that to you, that either they disclose it to you or that the, the, the uh, syndicator discloses that to you. So you wanna know about that uh, and make sure that you understand whether or not that's legal. And if you're not sure, then you may want to check with someone like me to uh, ask them if, if what's being done is, is legal before you make that decision. Gotcha. That, that is great. That's so much good information. So it sounds like you've got to, you've got to be aware of the, the type of doc one, well, I guess one, the type of um, security offering that they're, that they're doing. Right. And, yep. and making sure that you understand the rules of each, which, which I think you, you aptly explained mm -hmm. the, then the documentation related to each of those offerings. Right. So it sounds like the okay. documentation from a 506 B is different than what would be expected in a 506 C. Is that right? The, the 
description of the business is going to be largely the same, but the, the investor qualification section, which is called the suitability section, that's usually going to be section one of the private placement memorandum. That's going to be different depending on which exemption they've selected. Okay. And how, as an investor, do, do we get verified that, that we are accredited? Like how, how do you make sure you're following the rules? If you're, if you're investing in a Reg D Rule 506B offering, then you don't have to go through a verification process. The documents that the syndicator provides to you should be sufficient to, they should have the explanation of what is accredited in there and you get to read that and decide whether or not you meet those qualifications and, and you can self-certify. So just to you know, verify, just to go through what those um, qualifications are. So an accredited investor is somebody who has over a million dollars of net worth, excluding any equity in their private primary residence. So just, um, you know, other investments that you own, other rental properties, uh, income properties that you own, that's all part of your net worth, but you just can't uh, include any equity in your personal residence. Um, that's, so that's one qualification. The other alternative is an, an income qualification, which is if you're a single person and you make over $200,000 a year, or if you're a married person, you make over $300,000 a year as a, as a married couple. And that has to have been for the last two years with an expectation it will continue into the current year. So, so think of it as a one, two, three year, either a million dollars net worth or $200,000 income if single, 300,000 if married. Gotcha. And then on a, on a 506C where you have to, you have to, they have to validate that you're accredited. How does that process usually work? So the syndicator you know, may have the capabilities of doing that in-house by reviewing your income uh, statements or, or your net worth, um, or they may send you to a third party. Uh, that has to usually come from somebody who has a license, and a CPA, an attorney, registered investment advisor. Uh, could be your own person. You, know, they, you, can, you can use your own CPA to verify. And then uh, the, the rule for the syndicator is they have to have reasonable assurance that you're accredited before they make you before they allow you to invest with them. So you're going to provide a letter from somebody that you've either paid to do it or somebody that already knows uh, your qualifications and, and can review them for you. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So, so that's that's the first step: making sure you're you're avoiding people that are raising illegally, right? And then you talked about the the next type of fraud could be partner related fraud. That's right. Yeah. So that, this is a, a scary time for partner fraud, um, otherwise known as embezzlement. Um, you have to be careful that uh, people, uh, so there, there's something called the triangle of fraud. And uh, you can look it up on the internet and read about it your, more yourself, but it, it always consists of these three things. First, there has to be opportunity and access to the funds. Uh, second, there has to be some unshareable need, okay? Something you can't go to your partners and say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to lose my house if I don't make my mortgage payment. Could I borrow, you know, 2,000 bucks? Something like that. So um, you need to, they'll have some unshareable need and you know, it could be a valid need. It could be their own greed or, you know, their own vanity. It could be, you know, oh gosh, I really need this BMW. <laughs> you know, I should yeah. be living a different lifestyle than I am. Unfortunately, you know, I, I deserve a yacht, um, something like that. And, you know, I don't mean to make light of this, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. um, so opportunity, unshareable need, 
And then the third part is justification. So, you know, what happens, the, the opportunity, they've got to have access to the bank account, um, maybe access to the investor funds. So when we're dealing with a syndicator and just we've, we've bandied that word about maybe just in case somebody doesn't know what that means, that's just somebody who puts a group of investors together for a common purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so this syndicator has uh, access to all of these investor funds. You know, maybe there's some delays in getting the property acquired and so they've accumulated funds. Um, I actually was involved in a case once where there was a syndicator who had raised a million dollars to buy a property and uh, then there were some title defects on the property. They were trying to cure the property defects and in the meantime, this person started, uh, you know, deciding that, you know, all the things they thought they were going to be able to buy after the property closed once they cut their acquisition fees, they, they needed them now. So they went out and they bought a brand new BMW, they bought a, you know, bought a new house, they, you know, did all these things and pretty soon there's only half the money left in the bank. And um, when some of the other members of the management team uh, came to us and said, you know, we need help. Uh, we don't have access to the funds, but we know this is happening. We're really concerned. The investors are calling us. What can we do? And uh, we were able to wrest the money, you know, to, to, to get it away from that person before they exhausted all of it. But unfortunately, half of it was already gone. Um, property was never acquired. Those investors got their got their money back, the, the amount that remained, so about half their money back. Um, unfortunately, this person was... Uh, you know, a confidence man, right? We've all heard the term con man and con men are very charming and persuasive. And uh, they were able to persuade some of those people to put their money into the next deal where they would be made whole. Um, I have no idea what happened with that. And, wow. uh, you know, but, uh, you know, once bitten twice shy might be the, yeah. <laughs> the rule there. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so you've got it. So, so that's the kind of, uh, you know, they had access. Okay. Mm -hmm. They had this unshareable need. Well, you can't tell anybody, well, I really needed BMW because they, you know, they're not going to agree with that. And uh, so they just started uh, helping themselves to the money. And what was interesting is when they justified it. So they created this justification. And uh, so they would write checks to themselves out of the bank account. And in the memo line on the check, it would say, you know, repurchase of shares. Right, so they were selling their their shares, which were non-existent because the company had never began operation. Mm -hmm. They were selling them back to the company, and uh, you know, taking the money. So unfortunately, that's uh, that that didn't turn out as well as it could have, but it, it certainly didn't turn out as badly as it could have either. Yeah. Um, so so that's your unshareable need. Now the justification. So you know. It, the it could you know unshareable need right now in the midst of the coronavirus you know i don't have any income i need to pay my bills i you know i need to uh keep this business afloat i, I need to keep my other business afloat um you know i need to help my kids you mm -hmm. know there's all kinds of unshareable needs that people could be experiencing right now so this is the time if there ever was one to really pay close attention to what's going on in your in your syndication bank accounts and to ask if you're an investor in one of those syndications to ask for an accounting and uh, ask for it regularly. Whether or not you're gonna be able to get it is another question, but uh, it's certainly time to be questioning that. And, and uh, if you are a member of a management team within a syndicate, pay very close attention to your bank accounts and to the other members right now, just to make sure that nobody is uh, illegally taking some money out of the bank account that they shouldn't be. Um, the justification is always, you know, Oh, I'm doing it. I, I'm just selling back my shares, or, or 
I'm, uh, you know, I worked really hard and I spent all this time on this and I haven't been compensated at all. So I really deserve it. Or, you know, gee, I'm the one that put this whole entire deal together and I've worked harder than anybody else. So I really deserve it now. You know, so there's a lot of that. Uh, and usually it doesn't even start with the justification. It usually starts with, I'm just going to borrow the money, right? If I just use part of the money now, and then when this happens, I'll be able to pay it back. And then this never happens or this gets kicked too far down the road. And uh, then they have to justify why they don't need to pay it back anyway. So gotcha. that's, that's the triangle of fraud. So you've just got to really, you know, watch your partners, your bank accounts closely. Um, always set up a syndicate so that at least two people are watching the bank accounts. And uh, for any, um, any uh, withdrawals or checks over a certain dollar amount, there should be a requirement for approval from two people and it should be written approval um, but uh, just keep that keep that in mind watch for things like ATM withdrawals you know somebody will uh, just very frequently start going to the ATM and withdrawing you know three five hundred dollars at a time and um, and then not justifying that not providing mm -hmm. the proper documentation of what that was for um, watch for people taking advances on their pay Okay, people who are just saying, oh, well, I'm just going to take an advance on my paycheck for this and this and this. And, uh, and then they never reconcile it, you know, so the pay comes yeah. and just take the pay. So just be careful of those things. Um, watch for people who are paying their own personal credit cards with company funds. So this one seems a little bit more difficult as, an, as a limited partner, as an investor to, to figure out, right? I mean, it, it it, you see, it seems like you have to be asking some really good questions. So, um, so you said, you said, ask for, you know, an accounting, for example, but like specifically what, what should we as investors be asking the sponsors or, or expecting the, the, the deal sponsors to provide back to, to make sure that this isn't happening? Well, you could ask uh, before you invest might be a good time to ask what kind of documentation are you going to be providing to investors on a regular basis? You know, so uh, somebody who's very responsible or if it's a public company, they're going to be required to pr provide you with some quarterly statements that have very specific information in them. So, you know, ideally, you'd love to invest with somebody who's going to provide you with a quarterly reconciliation of the bank accounts and uh, all of the income and expense statements for the property for the prior quarter so that you can look at those and make sure that the uh, checks that have gone out and the withdrawals that have been made coincide with the expenses incurred by the property during that period of time. And anything that's being paid to the management, you want to just check and make sure that that's done in accordance with what the offering documents said. So back to the private placement memorandum or the operating agreement, uh, mm -hmm. if you've got interest in a company, it's going to say what the manager is entitled to take. You know, they're, they are entitled to certain fees at certain times and a share of profits after maybe after you've received your share, um, or maybe it's just a straight split, but uh, they shouldn't be taking their shares of profits at, at, in a, at times that are not specified in those offering documents. Mm -hmm. uh, so that those are the things you've really got to pay attention to. Um, knowing in advance that they're going to provide that stuff is going to give you some comfort. And then if they don't provide it, then all of a sudden, you know, you're going to kind of know that, uh, well, yeah. They said they were going to do one thing. They did something else. That's always a red flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are great tips. Mm -hmm. So the the third then you described what was the uh, the Ponzi scheme, 
right? Which is kind of made, made famous again with uh, Bernie Madoff and all that, that happened back then, which I guess has been 10 years ago now. But uh, so, so talk to us a little bit about, about what that is. Let's remind folks what a Ponzi scheme is and, and how do we watch out for that? So a Ponzi scheme is really just where somebody has already used the investor funds and for, you know, whether it's a legal or an illegal purpose, but they've used the investor funds and now they, they have to keep the business going and they've got investors that are saying, you know, hey, where's our returns that you promised? And so they don't have the money anymore, so they have to go out and raise money from new people in order to pay the previous people. And so it just becomes kind of a downward spiral where, you know, they're never going to be able to get out of it. The, uh, you know, the money's gone. It's not coming back. It was never a viable investment to begin with or something went wrong with it that they didn't share with investors and uh, were not able to fix or, or didn't take the steps necessary to fix it. And uh, the whole thing starts to go down. Um, one, one place where this might happen in, say, a real estate syndicate is, you know, it's very common for people to be able to raise enough money to close on the property, but not all the money they need to do all the things they want to do to the property, but they can raise enough to close on the property and acquire it. And then they don't ever raise the rest of the money. So it's, it's a, just a kind of a mistake for syndicators to take their foot off the gas after the property is acquired. And that often happens. Uh, so if, if you haven't raised enough money to, or if you know, the person you've invested with hasn't raised enough money to do all the improvements and uh, you know, everything else they need to meet their projections, then you'll just have the same property that the last person sold to you, right? So it's still gonna be underperforming, you're not gonna be able to get those additional units rented, you're not gonna be able to raise the rents. You know, all the things that they said they were gonna do are not gonna happen because they didn't raise enough money in the first place. And um, so it's not, a Ponzi scheme for them to continue raising money as long as their offering documents say that they can. Um, where it becomes a Ponzi scheme is if they, maybe they underestimated the amount that they needed to raise and they're not being honest with their investors about you know, what's really needed and so they go out and start getting hard money loans or personal loans or something like that in order to make up any kind of a shortfall. And so they're not following the documents. So as long as they're following what the documents allow them to do, then that's not a red flag. But it's when they start deviating from what the documents allow them to do in order to make up those shortfalls that uh, the other investors need to be concerned. Gotcha. So I think that, so what you were describing, Ken, is, or what investors can look out for is the, the capital expenses budget, right? Making sure that when you're evaluating a deal, and, and the sponsors talking about the, the, the improvements that they're going to make and, and how they're going to raise rent, you have to make sure that there's capital allocated to do that, right? So you want to see an itemized CapEx budget uh, that lays out specifically what they're going to do, you know, both externally and then internally, how much they're going to put into each unit to, to realize that additional revenue. Because as Kim said, if that's not there, then you're just going to have the same property that the person had before. You've got to have the budget to do that. So I, I think that is a, mis a key mistake. So I think asking for that budget, making sure it's itemized um, so that there's a clear relationship between what's going to be done and the improvements and, is really important. So that's one way to look out for it. But what if, so that's going into the deal. What if, what if you're in the deal, you know, and, and you just have a sense that, that things for whatever reason, they don't feel right. Um, 
how, how can you identify like once you're already in the Ponzi scheme? Well, you know, you're going to start hearing from other investors uh, and your calls perhaps to the syndicator are going to go unanswered. Um, that's a, that's a common thing is that, uh, you know, somebody gets in financial trouble, what do they do? They tend to stick their head in the sand and, uh, you know, just try not to answer anybody's calls or, or kind of disappear. Um, we actually write it into the offering documents uh, to the operating agreements that we have that a uh, manager can be disassociated for not answering phone calls, you know, for, mm. for going for some period of time without responding to anybody, you know, unless you knew they were going on vacation somebody, somewhere, but all of a sudden they just become unresponsive, that the members then can get together and can try to uh, get rid of that manager. Um, so, you know, how can you tell if somebody is engaging in a Ponzi scheme? You know, usually a, a very classic Ponzi scheme is they're, they're trying to fix this investment uh, by a new investment, right? Mm -hmm. So this was the situation with that guy that, uh, that I was saying had uh, taken half the money and tried to get the investors to reinvest the money with him in a new deal where he was going to make them whole. Um, that, that would have been more along the lines of, of the Ponzi scheme. Um, so, you know, how can you tell if somebody engages in Ponzi schemes? You know, certain, always do a Google search on the names of the people that are involved in management. So usually when we're creating a, a real estate syndicate, we're going to create a management uh, LLC that's going to have multiple members. So you want to know who those members are and you want to search their names. You want to know who's in control of the deal. And uh, the lender's doing that. You should be doing that too. Um, so search for their name on the SEC's, uh, on just Google. Also search uh, to see if they're, they filed their Form D with the SEC. Um, the timing of the filing is usually, uh, they, have to, they have to do the filing within 15 days of when your funds become irrevocably contractually committed. So depending on what their documents say, that could happen as when you send in the documents or it could happen when they close on the property. But uh, that's going to be that trigger for when they have to do that Form D filing. Uh, for our clients, we file those Form Ds as soon as we give them their final offering docs so that anybody, investor, could look them up at any time and see that they're legitimately filed with the SEC. Um, read the documents carefully. Make sure you understand what you're getting into. If you don't understand the waterfall and the fees that they're getting, if the, if the structure is too complex, you know, shy away. Don't invest in what you don't understand. It should be simple and straightforward enough that you can understand it without having to hire a lawyer to interpret it for you. Um, ask questions of the people that are promoting the deal and listen carefully to their answers and make sure that the answers make sense to you and that they're consistent with what you read in the documents. You know, if you're investing in a syndicate, you're going to get somewhere between 120 and 140 pages of legal documents. Understand what those documents are and what they mean. That will help you be able to assimilate all that information. Uh, you can hire you know, someone like us to, to look at the documents um, and just make sure that they comply with securities laws. Make sure you understand what, what it says and what it means. But honestly, you should be able to do that yourself. You know, we make sure that we always write our documents in plain English so that our investors and our clients, who are the syndicators, always know and can easily follow and understand those documents. If you get a set of documents that you have to have an attorney interpret for you, then you know, maybe this isn't the right kind of investment for you. Um, you know, if, if you ask the members of the management team if they have a problem with you doing background checks on them. 
Uh, they may or may not like that. They may or may not want to do it, but you can always ask and, and just listen to their reaction and decide whether you're comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, asking one thing I, I'm a huge proponent of, I, I always try to, to tell people is ask, ask a lot of questions up front, right? Make sure and make sure that, that you're getting answers that you're satisfied with. You should never be made to feel um, you know, stupid or, or like you don't know what you're talking about or because you're, because you're asking questions, right? And if people are trying to avoid those, um, there, there's probably something behind that, right? Um, and, and it just goes to show the type of manager they're going to be as you get into the deal and how communication is probably going to be throughout the deal as well. So I think don't be afraid to ask those questions up front that none of, there are no stupid questions when it comes to investing your own money. And uh, so I, I think that's fantastic advice. And and hopefully the documents are, are in plain English. I mean, I've seen plenty that, that are not, I mean, I guess they didn't hire you, but <laughs> um, so what I would say is it's definitely worth the money to, to have an attorney review them on the front end. You know, you, you may spend a few hundred dollars to, to have that happen, but it's going to be well worth it avoiding a bad deal. Right. So, so invest that on the front end. If you don't feel comfortable, that would be my advice, but That's right. yeah. Kim, this, this has been so much great information. I hope that today we're going to help some people avoid some bad deals. I hope that, that we get people thinking that they need to be conscious of this. And I think, as you said, um, in times of financial distress, you have to be even more vigilant. So um, I really appreciate you coming on. Before I let you leave, I, I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts. I've got uh, a section I do at the end of the show called Keys to Success. Just some short answers um, that I, I'd love to... I'd love to hear your responses to first one is what's one question that every passive investor should ask the deal sponsor. So if you only had one, what would that be? What have you done before? That's like this, right? Yep. And, and their answer either needs to be, well, I've done, you know, this many of these, you know, so if you're investing in multifamily, you want to invest with somebody who's already invested in multifamily. If, if the mm -hmm. person that you're talking to hasn't invested in multifamily, it, you know, it's okay. They may have teamed with somebody else who has that experience. So just understand the members of the management team and what experience they have doing what you are and planning on investing with them in, uh, you know, find out if they have uh, advisors and coaches and, and uh, just get a, a feel for their, their knowledge and whether or not they're competent to do it. Great. And what are you most proud of in your career? You know, I'm very proud of the fact that we, you know, one of the things our firm does is help people who have never raised money before uh, learn how to do it successfully and correctly so that they can go on and create a career you know, helping their investors and also you know, making a, a decent living for themselves. So I, I like the fact that uh, you know, we're able to not just help our clients, but we're indirectly helping all of their investors. And we're trying to teach people how to do it correctly and right so that they don't get into these situations of fraud and uh, they, they're very transparent with their investors and their investors, and they all understand what they're getting into. And what book should everyone read? Oh, they should read my book. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy, right? That's right. That's right. Well, there actually is a section in there uh, on passive, in, uh, passive investors and what to look for in a syndicator or what to look for before you invest 
in a real estate syndicate. And uh, the reason I wrote the book, it's, you know, it's 164 pages. It's, it's uh, not, you know, that long of a read. I've, I've written it in plain English. So it's, it's just lays out the whole process. So if you're thinking about investing in real estate syndication, you need to understand all the things that we've talked about today and how they're structured. And, and uh, then you'll have the right questions to ask and you'll be able to know whether the people you're investing in are setting it up the right way and uh, and what to look for and what things to ask them for. Um, one of the most important things to ask people uh, is you know who drafted their offering documents. If they drafted them themselves, you might be a little suspect of that. You know, the industry standard is to hire a competent securities attorney to draft those for you. We have securities liability insurance. You know your syndicator who's drafting their documents themselves do, does not. And uh, just because they think, you know, all I have to do is take this boilerplate and fill in some blanks. It's not necessarily true. There's quite a bit that goes into putting these documents together and making sure that the right tax provisions are in the documents. We've rescued people that have had the wrong tax provisions before that would have been harmful to their investors. Um, you know, just making sure that the things are, are set up correctly. Yeah, I think that would be a huge red flag for me if somebody said that they, they did it themselves. Yeah, and it should be. It, it should be because you know they're saving money at your expense. So uh, you know, and and in a syndicate, the legal fees are an upfront cost for the syndicator, but they're part of the setup costs of that company, which are are expenses that can be reimbursed from the raise. So you know, the the syndicator should be raising enough money to acquire the property. So for the down payment, the closing costs, any pre-closing expenses they incur, including including our legal fees, you know, hiring uh, um, property inspectors, things like that. So they should be able to get reimbursed for all of those expenses. So um, you want them to, to hire competent counsel and you should be happy to pay for those fees as part of the cost of, of doing the business because then you know that it's done right and uh, that they've sought appropriate counsel. They're probably not breaking the law the way they're raising the money because we've counseled them about that. The documents are going to be uh, you know, written in a way that's kind of customary in the industry. Yeah, it, it seems like hiring a, a competent securities attorney and validating that, that that's what they've done is a way to, to validate that, that at least on that, that first one of raising illegally, that, that they're not doing that, right? Because they have that, that person that's guiding them to do the process correctly. So that's I, right. Yeah. And we just, if you're interested in uh, what's on our website, we have a lot of, lot of educational material for free that's available on our website at syndicationattorneys.com. Uh, we have an entire library full of articles and frequently asked questions. Um, previously recorded teleseminars. Uh, we do free monthly teleseminars every single month and we post them all on the website on all different topics related to syndication. So it's just a really great way to get educated. Yeah, that's a great resource. I'll make sure that we get that in the show notes for folks. Yeah. And then what's your number one key to success? Uh, consistency, right, is just, you know, being out there all the time, uh, you know, being in front of people, letting people know what you do and, um, you know, I guess from uh, the perspective of, of a syndicator, somebody who's raising money, you know, it's just important for you to be engaging in the kind of promotion of your business as, as we do for our law firm. Um, if you're somebody who is looking to invest in deals, you need a network and you need a network at events where experienced real estate investors go. 
Um, so that would be, you know, any of the real estate trainers that are out there that hold kind of these nationwide networking events. I know they're all on pause right now. Um, but when they do resume, that's a great place to go and to meet people face to face and uh, learn about what they do. Uh, you can go to your local real estate investment association meetings and to local real estate meetups and uh, meet people that are that are doing this. So it's best if you can get to know the people you invest in more than just a single meeting and uh, you know make sure that they understand your investing goals as well as you understand who they are and their background and uh, just really get familiar with them. You're gonna be in a relationship for the next three to seven years and you want it to be a successful relationship. So spend some time developing that relationship and making sure that you're comfortable before you move it forward. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. So, so you already, you're, you told us about the website, um, but what's the name of the book? How to Legally Raise Private Money. And you can get a free copy of it at our website at syndicationattorneys.com. There's a tab there that says get the book. Um, and, or you that's can buy, a, a, buy it on Amazon. Oh, fantastic. It sounds like it's, it's well worth it. Well worth it. I think, I think what we've proven today once again is that, you know, passive investing is anything but passive. If, if you want to do it the right way. I mean, it, it takes work. It takes commitment. I agree with you. You need to be out networking to, to find deal sponsors and get to know them um, before you invest. Um, and you need to do your due diligence, right? Uh, going into it. I mean, not just on the deal underwriting, but, but on the legal structure, how they've set it up and make sure that, that they're following uh, the right steps and the right processes to make sure that, that the deal uh, doesn't become at risk at some point, right? So, right. so we've got to be educating ourselves as passive investors and making sure that, that we're putting the hard work in too. Um, thank you, Kim, so much for your time. Really appreciate all, all the value you brought here. Um, I mean, it's been just jam-packed with info. So, so thank you so much again. Oh, thank you so much, Kent. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And everybody listening, I want you to take two minutes and go subscribe to the podcast right in the app right now, because if you do that in May um, and you send me an email at info at RitterOnRealEstate.com, you're going to receive some powerful content in support of the show. Joe Fairless, uh, Gino Barbaro of, of Jake and Gino, Dan Hanford of PassiveInvesting.com, Hunter Thompson of ASIM Capital, and John Kasman of Kasman Capital. And actually, uh, Kim Lisa Taylor here has offered as well to, to provide some, some fantastic content to share with you. So they're each providing a piece of content in support of the show. Um, all you have to do to receive this package is go and subscribe to the podcast in May. And again, send an email to info at ritteronrealestate.com. So, so don't miss out. And with that, thank you, Kim, so much. And uh, I hope That's to talk again soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.